data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. In today's episode, I speak with Christopher Wilson, Chris is the VP of Portfolio Strategy and Go-To-Market at Experian. And Chris has got an amazing background. He spent a lot of time in telco across various parts of the world, lived in Asia for six years, and was very much on the cusp of actually helping these telco giants drive their digital transformation journeys. And he brings all of that into the decisioning software domain and is responsible for Portfolio Strategy for that Experian. And we explored a wide variety of topics today, ranging from consumer sentiment and how is how are businesses being challenged in new ways post-COVID era, and how are consumers changing their behavior, and what are the best ways for businesses to engage uh, with consumers, with customers, and how do you respect their um, need to make sure that they have visibility and transparency and how you use their data and so forth. So it was a great discussion. I enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Chris, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? I'm fantastic, Ganesh, and really a pleasure to be on the show and speak to you today. No, it's amazing. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, it's it's pretty exciting. And, and it's great to actually have someone who's familiar with the show, who's been listening to the show as well. So great to have you here as a guest. Why don't we get started with your background? We'll dive right in right after. 100%. So like many of the guests on your show, and uh, no doubt some of the listeners as well, I come from a, a product management background. And actually, uh, prior to joining Xperia, I worked, I worked about 15 years in telecommunications. Mm. And I was helping very large organizations across the globe undertake their digital transformation. And actually, the, the, the technologies that I was working on as a product manager are many of the same technologies which really came to the fore during this, this COVID period. Uh, things mm. like remote video collaboration, uh, technologies using the cloud, software as a service, uh, basically the kind of uh, distant ancestors of, of the Zoom and Microsoft Teams that we're all using today. And so we were building these, we were integrating them into our networks, um, we were helping the, the heads of these large organizations get their heads around uh, what did cloud mean for their business? Um, what does that mean to follow a software as a service type commercial model? And how do you securely provide access to your employees? And I think most interestingly for me, 
uh, was that we we already had this this early idea of hybrid worker uh, mm-hmm. over ten years ago, and and we were already grappling with this this concept of what would it be like if your staff were only in the office two or three days a week. And it, it's funny to me because at the time that concept was incredibly avant-garde. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot yeah. of business leaders <laughs> thought you were crazy if you're imagining a world in which your employees were only visible at their desks two or three days a week. And sure, there's still a, a debate going on right now. And, and, you know, every day you can look on LinkedIn and, and someone's weighing in on this discussion. But I feel it's it's a much more mainstream, uh, normalized concept than it, it was 10 years ago when we were talking about it. No, I, I agree with you, Chris. And first off, I think, you know, some of those uh, software that you actually called out, like Teams and Skype, not so distant ancestors. It still sucks, you know, but, <laughs> you know, all the others, I get it. Uh, no, I, I and it's so fascinating. I did. I do have some background during my days at Dell. I, spe- I spent a lot of time with the um, telco community at that time. And it was always fascinating for me because there was a lot of forward thinking as because it was such a core infrastructure play if you're in telcos and, and um, uh, infrastructure kind of uh, projects. And you had to really think through um, how things are going to evolve over time. But obviously, nobody really predicted how quickly that switch got turned on uh, because of uh, COVID. Um, the last part that you said, however, Chris, is interesting because, you know, I think there is still a growing uh, divide in people believing in true hybrid work versus, mm. you know, yeah, it's never going to be productive. People are just like, there's a lot of folks, a lot of founders I know, Elon Musk, everybody who's complaining that, hey, this whole uh, complete hybrid remote work, not being in the office is not going to work long term. We got to come back to being in the office. Um, I know like a lot of companies like Experian, Dell, you know, my wife works at Dell, and then they're very much embracing off the remote culture saying, we understand that the world is going to be hybrid. And we have to enable our employees and, and partners to be as productive and as happy as wherever they are. Okay. Um, it's pretty awesome. A hundred percent. And I think my experience of seeing this employed ac- across a whole range of different industries and across a whole range of different countries. Uh, so mm-hmm. as part of my role, I actually lived out in Hong Kong for six years and I, I traveled to the Middle East. I traveled to South Africa and so on. And, and, and so I've seen... Um, the success of hybrid work really depends on aspects such as the local culture, the culture mm. of the organization, and also the kind of job you're doing. Um, and it's been funny over the last That's few true. months that people have, have come back into the office. You know, many are actually delighted to see their colleagues again and delighted to get into a meeting room and write on a whiteboard and, you know, go for a coffee afterwards. And these, these are kind of human engagements which are very exciting to people. And, uh, and so there's, there's definitely a value in that. And in some roles, that's more important than in others. Um, yeah. But I, I feel like the kind of the balance is something that more and more large organizations are kind of, uh, you know, seeking to achieve now. And, and it's more inclusive as well, you know, in terms of enabling diversity, you know, there's definitely an element of that in, in hybrid work. No, totally agree. And I think, I think it was Walter Isaacson who said, right, humans are hardwired for collaboration. And, you know, mm. which actually opens up the, the, the opportunity on the one hand saying remote tools, all the technology today is still not really going to replace that whole thing, which is a huge opportunity. The metaverse, crypto, Web3 kind of uh, folks were working on it. But on the other hand, it kind of emphasizes the need for human connection and making that a part of your fabric. Right. So you might have the best technology, but you've got to embrace that. OK, why don't we dive into, um, you know, first, tell us about your role at Experian. Right. What do you do on a day to day basis? 
Absolutely. Um, so I'll talk you through what my role, uh, my title is, and then I'll explain what that means, because I know that uh, titles can be something difficult to decipher. Yeah. So I'm, I'm the vice president of portfolio strategy within decisioning in Experian. So to explain mm -hmm. what that means, I'm really interested in how uh, data and analytics software helps businesses make credit risk decisions. Um, and I'll give you a kind of specific example that hopefully you, your listeners will, will understand. Um, so imagine you go for it to apply for a loan from your bank. What yeah. they would do is using experienced software or an equivalent, uh, firstly, they would determine that you are who you say you are. Mm -hmm. uh, second, they would pull up some data, your, your credit history and a score that would represent your ability to pay this loan off. Uh, then they would use a series of rules, which which we call a strategy. But if, if we're thinking kind of uh, AI um, data scientists, as many of your audience are, we might just call it a model. But we'd use this model to decide whether to approve your application. Um, we could approve it, we could refuse it, or it could be referred to an underwriter for a manual inspection. And so this, this process that we call decisioning kind of sits at the heart of, of, of kind of uh, credit risk um, analysis, uh, credit provision, it's being used all around the world. It's being used in, in financial services, obviously. Um, it's heavily used in telecommunications, um, insurance, um, automotive, uh, anywhere where credit is being provided, someone's having to make a, a decision and they're using data and analytics and software, possibly experience to make that kind of decision. Um, and in terms of my role um, as sort of um, responsible for, for strategy uh, globally, I'm, I'm looking across the, the technology trends, the business trends, the consumer trends in this space, and I'm trying mm -hmm. to anticipate what does this all mean? Uh, where is it going? And I have this uh, voracious appetite for data and insights to help me to, to, to be a little bit predictive on there and to ultimately make recommendations to the Experian business on where we employ our limited resources. Uh, so, so there's a little bit of uh, understanding this data, making sense of this data, and ultimately doing the right thing to to help our uh, our customers who are predominantly, you know, large financial services, automotive, telecommunications, but also uh, kind of our experience um, values around helping consumers to yep. not take on credit that's not affordable to them and to protect them and so on. Um, and so just on this sort of this process, I described this kind of loan process, there's sort of a number of things. We're all consumers, right? We all, uh, you know, are using credit cards and things on a daily basis. You know, what would you want from that process? You want mm -hmm. it to be seamless. Okay. Don't ask me for a hundred pieces of information. Uh, please do not ask me to go to my local branch with a copy of my passport and my driving license and my, my, my birth certificate. Um, in order to apply for credit, don't ask me those things because I, I don't want to do that. Um, yeah. and, 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 we, and we laugh about it, but there are some organizations that are still doing that today. There are oh, some organizations that me. are <laughs> relying on manual processes um, and, and using Excel spreadsheets and other such tools rather than automating and using AI. So um, that's, that's a kind of real situation. I've had a, a high street bank actually tell me, can you come into a branch and, and do this process? So that's kind of the, the consumer side. Then on the business side, what do you want? You want to uh, you want to minimize risk, of course. You know, absolutely pr uh, crucial. You minimize risk, um, but you also want to minimize your cost as well. So you don't want to have lots of manual referrals. You don't want to have to involve a significant number of underwriters if you can simplify it. Um, mm -hmm. You don't want to have a branch on every single 
street corner just for this loans process if you don't need to, if that's not how consumers want to engage, because that's a very expensive thing to do. Um, so these are all the kind of dimensions that I'm, I'm looking at as part of my role. And I'm saying, OK, what do we how do we need to change our product? How do we need to change the way that we do things, our ways of working to represent the way this, this is going in this kind of post-COVID period? You know, interesting, you know, that's that's a first off, congrats. That's an amazing role. Sounds like you're having so much fun. It's very evident. You're passionate about it. The, the two things I couldn't help, um, you know, I, um, identify with was one was you had kind of a dual responsibility or dual thing where one, you were actually trying to help consumers and you know, businesses trying to actually just be competitive in this landscape, in the area of lending, in the area of credit, credit risk and so mm-hmm. forth. But on the other hand, you're also a practitioner of data and analytics by looking at this universe of data and the trends that are happening across the world to see what do I need to go act on? What is signal versus noise? How do I actually do it? And it's very fascinating, right? Because, you know, when you're in a, and that's the opportunity when you are in a larger organization like Experian, where you get to do both. Whereas if you're in a smaller company, you're probably just focused on building for the customer and not so much having a broader view of uh, of the market in general. So, you know, let me, let me ask you, what do you see from your vantage point when you look at the market? What do you see in, you know, that's happening that's good versus bad? Right. Give me a landscape. Mm. Sure, absolutely. And I guess what I'll do is I'll I'll start by talking about this very specific credit risk space sure. in which I'm, you know, doing my living my daily life, and then we can talk more broadly about AI, machine learning, and and some of Perfect. the exciting trends and and, and so on. Um, I mean, I guess just to to come back to that uh, loan approval process we just talked about. Um, you know, as I said, many organisations today are still relying on manual processes. Um, and, you know, genuinely, there was a, a provider I spoke to who, who used, still use spreadsheets. OK, so this is this is very real. Now, even for those who are, uh, you know, employing software such as experience to automate this process, when it comes to the actual models, which we call strategies that decide whether or not you're approved, these are typically handcrafted by experts based on a range of different criteria. So, you know, creating a scorecard. Of details of which, against which you referred. So these kind of traditional custom models are, are slow, uh, they're resource intensive to develop and deploy, and, and, and often they're kind of outdated when they've even been launched. You know, take the last two years of you know, the COVID period, uh, you know, now we're going through um, a cost of living uh, crisis in, in, in many economies um, and potentially, you know, a, a, a recession as well. So you know, you, you kind of handcraft these models based on the situation that we have today, uh, you know, based on the on the mind of the person who's doing it, very, very skilled, very, very well trained. But yeah. then you constantly have to change these models. OK, so uh, to address these needs, basically, businesses want to develop and deploy these models in a very agile way and at low cost. And, and what we do is we have an analytics pro, uh, platform that helps us to do that. So we have a, an anonymized sandbox based on um, our bureau data. So, you know, all of the data uh, in the US, which is anonymized, and you can, using our AI models, you can build your your strategy and you can test it against the market in anonymized fashion, okay? So you can see how this would perform in the UK, in the US, for instance. Um, And so it's, you know, incredibly powerful to start building your models uh, and your, your strategies using AI 
using a kind of champion challenger uh, methodology to see is yeah. it better than what we handcrafted and then to constantly refresh to outperform the way that you are today um, and so that is incredibly exciting for me uh, awesome. for many of the AI practitioners who are, are kind of listeners on your call that might seem uh, quite a basic case but the reality is I, I want you to all to imagine a very large financial services organization uh, they will have a huge legacy of tech, a huge tech debt. Uh, imagine a room full yeah. of uh, kind of spaghetti wires of um, old, old uh, on-premise mainframe machines. Many of these are currently controlling how credit decisions are being made today, um, you know, some of which are uh, decades old. And to move from that to a kind of modern uh, cloud architecture, API-driven, harnessing machine learning, uh, you know, harnessing kind of uh, closed loop algorithms and so on is a huge step for these organizations. And they they have massive uh, technology barriers. They have, you know, human cultural barriers as well to overcome uh, to, to do that. So there's a huge amount of power in offering this, this, this kind of solution, this end-to-end -end platform um, approach using AI, but also the barriers, you know, the, the, the level of effort, the inertia that has to be overcome by these large financial services, telcos, et cetera, to actually embrace that future is it's a lot of work to be done. That is awesome. No, you know, it's fascinating how, uh, you know, there, you, you covered both sides of it, right? The, the, the even touched upon the technical challenges of actually, how do you actually deal with it? And I've actually, um, I think I've met someone who used your, I think it's called the Ascend sandbox. To actually yes, that's right. Thing and. They were actually telling me it really would help them a lot just trying to get some uh like you said the the champion challenger model to a test out saying let me just get a baseline of how performance is for these models and so forth so it's interesting now you guys do a global insights report um every quarter or every year i i i i've been following it i've you know tweeted about it a few times because i really felt it was a really good uh broad um, purview of the market, everything from consumer sentiment to how businesses are actually looking at it. So you get both sides of the spectrum and then with layered on with a very technology bent to it, like AI and analytics and so forth. So um, you're, I think the last one came out in April or May or something. So what are some of the things, and I know you're very closely tied to that. So we were talking about it earlier. So talk to me about the, the talk to us about the, uh, the key insights that came out of that report. What do you, what are the big themes that you're seeing in the market? Sure, absolutely, and and I think um, before I jump into the detail, just caveat. So this is this is based on uh, six thousand consumers and two thousand businesses from twenty countries worldwide. So there's a lot of uh, richness, regional difference between yeah. yeah diversity between between different markets. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, I've got this voracious appetite for data and insights. So for me, this was kind of gold dust, and I was going around everyone in my team saying, "Come on, guys, we've we got to we've got to act on this. this is fantastic." Um, but yeah, so so basically, survey was taken in April. Um, if you look at the the kind of uh, global situation at the time, I think the number of COVID cases was about half of the peak. So it, you might say it was premature to call this kind of post-COVID, but I would argue that from a, a lifestyle and attitude perspective for consumers, it kind of represents a new normal for them. Okay. Yep. Um, so I guess I guess to start with the things that were kind of uh, not surprising, right? I mean, first of all. Um, significant increases in digital spend from consumers, uh, you know, 
retail shopping, etc., uh, 53% said that they'd increase their online spend. Another 50% said that they plan to increase it further in the next three months. Um, and so, you know, not surprising, continuation of what we saw in COVID, and mm-hmm. in fact, what we were saying before COVID, but fundamentally, online retail is here to stay, online uh, transactions here to stay, and across all ages, basically, huge intention to spend more online going forward. Um, and related to that was this interesting thread about experiences. And so, you know, there was a number of uh, of interviewees said that a positive online experience made them more loyal to the brand. Okay. Now, again, have, reflect on uh, these large financial services organizations with their huge legacy, the, the spaghetti of, of technology in the back room. And, and they are now competing in this new space against uh, neobanks, against fintechs, against, you know, buy now, pay later providers who are uh, digital native, have none of the, the kind of technology baggage. Uh, they've been able to employ the uh, best practice around agile, around, um, you know, uh, uh, client discovery, yeah. all these kind of methodologies, you know, uh, working in a, a collaborative fashion online. And so as a large financial service provider, you know, you're going up against these guys. And now the people you're trying to sell to these consumers are saying, most important thing to me is a great online experience. And I will choose providers whose online is better. Okay. So that's very worrying for the, the kind of, the, again, the traditional provider, um, you know, these, these, these large banks and others. So that's um, awesome. And, you know, and, and a couple of things, right? One is definitely we you. I think we're now in a world where we use the phrase post-COVID, right? But it's, you know, this was COVID just was the acceleration. But we have, we have seen this trend of actually going more digital, you know, driving more interactions in an omni-channel, multi-channel fashion across not just physical stores, but online experiences. But I think co- what COVID definitely did was flip the switch and saying, what becomes your primary way of interacting with a customer if you're a business and for a customer if you're a, if you're a if you're interacting with a business, right? So definitely, you know, we used to joke that, you know, your, you know, your website is your storefront, right? But it's more than just the storefront right now. It's your back office. It's everything. It's integrated in providing that as a service model from soup to nuts for, for customers and consumers. I think a few things that you said was interesting and definitely the explosion of fintech, crypto oriented, Mm. tokenized players, and, you know, there's DeFi, decentralized finance. There's a lot of things that are happening in the uh, in the market. This week is, and I live in Austin, Texas, and this week is Consensus 2022, which is happening in person. So right after this call, I'm heading downtown to to we had to do some meetings. But um, it's just fascinating to see the 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 explosion because I mean fundamentally, we think about it, there's probably three things that human beings really care about, right? Health, wealth, and happiness, right? Uh, mm. Or commerce, you know, you can say, but you know, commerce gives you happiness, right? But I think, um, and financial wellness is such a huge topic and it's just emerging out to be like everything that's happening in the world, the inequalities and stuff. So it's becoming front and center and the technology building blocks now exist to enable these really amazing business models, right? I mean, buy now, pay later. I'm, I'm just fascinated by everybody's doing that right now. And it's in mm. fact like if you're doing, if you're a Klarna or somebody, you're providing that as a service to anybody who wants to do it, right? So um, it's just fascinating uh, from that perspective. Now, how has the consumer sentiment changed in terms of how they 
I mean, is everybody like digital native versus a regular bank? Are the trust levels for the consumer the same? Do they trust both the businesses, both kinds of businesses? What do you see there? So this is, this is the really interesting thing now. So actually what we've started to see and what's revealed within the, the survey results is that these uh, you know digital natives and mobile wallet providers, et cetera, are now rivaling traditional credit cards. Mm. And so we saw yeah. uh, sort of trust for mobile wallets, credit cards, and direct debit uh, payment providers broadly in line with one another and, and pretty much across all different age groups. Um, so this is a huge upending of the kind of status quo within financial services. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the UK and for us, um, banks are the large stone building in the center of your town with uh, Corinthian columns that's been there for a hundred years um, and, and, and kind of is a symbol of stability and mm-hmm. to a certain extent trust. Now you have these entrants, you know, some of which are less than 10, uh, 10 years old in being established, whose uh, existence is, is an app on your mobile device, whose mm-hmm. brand is relatively new. And yet our, our survey, our, our insights is telling us that these are trusted and that these are, uh, you know, the primary way that consumers would like to engage with commerce and e-commerce particularly um, and to pay for services. And so that's an incredibly exciting uh, change in the market. Obviously, if you're in a traditional financial service provider, you're looking at, do we partner? Do we do we build our mm-hmm. own uh, neobank offshoot? Uh, or is there some other strategy we need to engage? But but very interesting, the level of trust that uh, that consumers have for these new players is has moved so quickly over, over COVID. No, you know, in, interestingly, that's that's very well put, uh, Chris. I think what we're also seeing is like broadly outside of the, the the financial services world or stuff like just working with AI, right? Right now, you're interacting with. I mean, AI as a from a technology standpoint is fast evolving as a computational platform, right? It's not mm-hmm. just the the one little offshoot thing in there, but you know, most decisions. The, the default mode is actually just have an, a decisioning system, an automated decisioning system, surface the insights from the data and so forth, right? What that does is actually the, the you know, Hollywood narratives get, you know, screen time and, and uh, newsworthy articles around it. But the reality is people's trust on automated decisioning systems are getting better, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because like, you know, do I, am I going to be discriminated against this? There's enough bad news that comes out, but I think the general level of trust is also coming up from that perspective. So um, it's it's fascinating time to be alive, right? I mean, I think um, it's funny. I mean, we, we think about generational changes, right? So our kids, when they grow up, and they're like, like what is trust? I mean, I thought this is the only thing I can trust, right? There's no, you know, should I trust the human being behind it versus an algorithm telling me what to do? I'm like, it's the default is the algorithm. And should I trust the human being behind it is a bigger question that's going to come up, right? Um, so this is fascinating. This is fascinating. Um, the one last thing I want to actually uh, touch upon in, a, in our conversation is, you know, I like I, I like to think of this as like, um, you know, just to close out on trust. I think trust, I think, mm. is the new currency for mm. digital interactions, right? I, I, it's it's very evident that you know, uh, one one of my portfolio companies, Credo AI, they actually do uh, responsible AI platforms to help you audit and ensure your AI systems are doing the right thing. 
what we're realizing is it's it's more than the technical aspect of things because you know you mentioned businesses wants to manage risk so one is reputational risk financial risk forward performance risk and so forth but the you know things like reputational risk things like you know um, um, you know not being not wanting to go and testify in front of the senate if for doing something that your algorithm did that you weren't really having a uh, thing on. So what the one trend that we're seeing, and I wanted to ask you whether you're seeing that too, and even Experian did this, is forward-leaning uh, organizations are just saying, hey, let me tell you what we do with your data. Let me tell you how we make decisions, right? Here's a framework. I'm pretty much giving you my playbook on what I'm doing with this, my treatment of the data, the handling of the data, and so forth. You think that's a trend that's here to stay, and even smaller players will have to just adapt to that? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So in this report, we, we talk about the uh, the sort of new digital consumer or sometimes the, the savvy consumer. And, and these are consumers who are increasingly aware of the value of their data. Mm. And, and, and so basically, you know, I, I sort of see three scenarios. Uh, you know, you're using my data. Why are you using it? Are you using it to provide the product, you know, such as like a, a maps type service, a location type service? Um, are you using my data to to improve your product? And, and if you listen to kind of modern product management methodologies, they say that we should constantly be collecting data about how our products are being used in order to make them more aligned to the needs of the, the customer. Um, or is my data actually the product? So, for example, in, in advertising and other mm-hmm. type services. And in any of those instances, I want to feel that the value exchange of me giving you my data, I'm getting something in return. I'm getting something right. return. Um, and so what is that something? Am I getting uh, security? Am I getting convenience? Am I getting additional personalization? Uh, or am I getting you know, the ability to communicate with friends via a social, sh- social media network or so on? But I want to know exactly what the data is that you're collecting about me. I would like to decide how and when it's employed. Um, and I want to have the option to opt out of those. And, sure. and so, like the most notable uh, example from from recent years was the the Apple iOS, I think fourteen point five, where you know now users of that iOS have the option yeah. to decide how and when applications are consuming their data and what forms of data they're consuming. And obviously, this is a, a big disruptive effect on many different organizations' business models, who are using you know your ability to browse from their uh, their their app. Uh, yeah. In order to you know collect data and use it, and so I think I think we're going into a new era of transparency, where uh, consumers will choose providers that tell them how their data is going to be used and give them a choice, um, and and those that do not give that level of transparency will will not be trusted. And if the value exchange is one where I feel that what I'm giving you is more valuable than what you're giving me in your app. Um, then I'm going to walk away from it. And so it's a, it's a big challenge. It's going to be a, a big challenge, a big opportunity for organizations to respond to. But I don't think we can turn the, the clock back from here. Yeah. I think you know the, the sort of education of consumers is something that is important, uh, that all organizations should be engaging in, um, and they should be adapting their business models accordingly. No, you're, you're, you're more golden words that you know you got to... Um... <laughs> To pay attention to because I think it's it's so um, wonderful that you actually phrased it that way. We are entering into this world where consumers wouldn't want to have control over not just their data, but no, they may not really care about having and keeping those data, but they want to know and control how that data is used 
and what kind of value exchange happens mutually in the process, right? Um, the only thing that comes to mind is there's all this, you know, so like I, I am a, I'm long crypto, so I believe in, you know, the future, you know, there's a lot of um, equitable solutions you can drive in the world, financial inclusion, including um, with crypto and tokenomics in general. But the funny, um, the, the very interesting um, comment, I think, I don't know, forget who it was, tweeted that, uh, I think it was an Aaron Oren Hoffman. Um, he was like, look, the fact that there is money embedded into a transaction in crypto and tokenomics, is that a feature or a bug? <laughs> you no, know, because, you know, <laughs> what you're not, not used to right now is like, imagine like the cash flow conversation or the interaction now becomes ha having some kind of a monetary value associated with it. I mean, you don't really can't call it monetary, but, you know, some kind of tokenized value associated with it. So is that going to change the nature of the interaction, the change the nature of people's behavior with those interactions? So um, we're definitely entering into exciting worlds, but definitely I love what you said right people are gonna we are entering this new digital post-covid era where people will want to know how they're they want to have control over how their data is used and what they get in return right um 100%, Chris, this is 100%. amazing um what's your uh, i would say give me a top three advices advice for organizations looking at deploying ai and analytics to go transform or drive their digital transformation sure i mean uh... I'll, I might turn this around and ask you a question, actually, because uh, I've, I've got my views, but I'm keen based on the amazing um, number of interviews you've done and, and engagements you've done with the AI community. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I constantly hear from, from customers is with regards to successful deployment of AI. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's, uh, you know, billions of dollars being spent in this exciting new burgeoning market and, and innovation around, around machine learning. And yet we know from a range of uh, different uh, research reports, you know, Gartner, MIT Sloan, uh, you know, writers like Thomas Davenport, that, that less than 20% of models are being put into production. Yeah. And so what you're seeing there, at least in 2022, is is a, a poor return on investment for business, right? At least where we are right now on the, on the kind of hype cycle. So I'm, I'm keen. Um, my, my advice uh, or my, my sort of challenge to business leaders and, and to listeners would be uh, reflecting on why that is the case, recognizing the power of data, which I think all of your listeners will, will believe in, and the power of, of this technology. How do we actually deliver successful business outcomes and return on investment on those? So I'm, I'm keen for your reflections. Um, first you know, it's a first off, you know, you, you, again, you phrased it really well, the challenge uh, around this. But I think I, I I believe my personal view and informed definitely by all the conversations I've had is I think we are slightly looking at this a little differently. We're still like in the in mm. the in the grand scheme of things with AI, we are still very, very early. Right. So I agree. I mean, there is a lot of hype that it's in any particular thing like Internet, pet.com versus, you know, all those things that happened before real value started coming in. AI is, you know, been around for a long time, but the like deep learning was invented three years ago, two years ago, right? The first paper was 2018. So we're not that far along in that journey to start seeing this as an everyday thing. So that said, I think there is a there is a positioning problem in how the, the, the expectations setting problem in how businesses look at AI. You can AI is definitely a piece of technology. It's a tool like any any other piece of technology that gives you the opportunity to leap, you know, 
exponentially ahead of competition or be left behind if you don't adapt it, right? So the, the, the premise is actually true. It's very powerful. It can provide you advantages that you didn't have before. You know, just as, as a, at a human level, our brains have, haven't evolved in, you know, the same, whatever, 100, 150,000 years, 200,000 years that we've been around. Um, the, the, the world around us has changed. The amount of data we produce is just impossible for us to comprehend everything, right? But that said, I think we're sl- slightly looking at this the right way, right? The way the most successful organizations that have put AI to work and made a difference to them, they look at it slightly differently. And the one way they look at it is say they look at this as a capability uh, enhancement opportunity, right? Meaning it's not about buying a SaaS-based AI product and making a difference to the business. That'll happen eventually. But AI brings in what you said earlier, the fundamentals of experimentation, being able to you know, ask questions of the data, iteratively find out and get, you know, AI is not a deterministic science, right? In general, it is mostly probabilistic in nature. So you have to give time for that iteration. What you can do, and the success of successful organizations, what they did was build capability, in-house, engineers, peeps, people, team, processes, the whole nine minutes. So that's one. So to me, that is a, uh, there's an amazing podcast that I had with Daniel Fagella of, uh, he actually runs a business um, AI and business podcast, which is another uh, very popular podcast. So he was on my show, launching it like right after our call, um, uh, right after this this recording. But um, and he talks about this thing, saying, "I think you should look at that capability spectrum as a return that you're getting out of the efforts in there." The second thing is, you have to look at this and say, "What's your appetite for doing something with this?" If it, if, if your mm. industry is getting disrupted right away and you have to go make this happen. You have to look at it and say, am I going to get, am I going to make those high risk, high return kind of bets where like I'll try five things and four and a half of them will fail. And the, the other half that actually survives is not going to look anything like, you know, it, we started off with, right? So when you have that setting in mind, then you're actually trying to do moonshots and stuff like that. And a lot of companies who actually went into it, organizations that went into it, are saying, you know, we're going to try this. If it doesn't work, we're going to learn from it. We're going to build capability and we'll try this, right? So they're very clear thing. That means you're allocating, I don't know, 5% of your R&D span or 10% of your R&D span and not like betting the farm on AI and stuff. And then there is other industries which are more mature, which, you know, and AI is also the thing that it's, as I said, technology. The bigger question is, do you have deep understanding of your business? And if you have the deep understanding of your business, AI provides you tools to automate it, you know, to expand the, the horizons of people, augment people and doing that and so forth. So there are the, the third camp of um, customers who are trying this and say, look, we very well understand our process. So we're not going to try to go make it and do press releases and have AI on every third word that my CEO speaks in a conference. But we're going to just go focus on the fundamentals. Look at low-hanging fruits, start solving problems that, hey, there is an invoice processing uh, process that I'm actually in my business process. Exceptions cost me $20 million a year. Great. Can I just reduce that exceptions from you know, uh, the cost of that exception, um, cut the number by half and get to $10 million a year to manage exceptions? That's a win for me, right? I'm not going to try to go do the moonshot. And the, the real winners out there are constantly experimenting across all the three spectrum, right? Building capability, going for moonshots, and then number three, definitely focusing on the fundamentals, which is what you said, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Get to outcomes, deliver value, 
make a case and so forth. But, you know, I think we're well past the era of, you know, having to want to educate everybody on what AI can do. Everybody knows that. Now is the time for positive and quicker value realization. And I think there is a lot of um, great lessons out there. And like a lot of guests who came on Stories in AI talked about what they did to actually see it, right? And the common themes are things like, you, you know, make sure everybody's bought in. There's a lot of buy-in across all levels of the organization. You know, and there's a very realistic expectation of what to expect. You're not going to change things overnight and all that kind of stuff. And then you start small. You think big, you start small and move really, really fast, right? That's a common theme I see. Um, but no, it's 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 fascinating. And, and, and you guys are doing an amazing job from my conversation with Sri and, you know, um, Charles and some of the folks that I've actually interacted with at Experian. Um, it's an amazing, uh, you guys are doing an amazing piece of work. And you're you're right now in this place where, like, um, I mean, financial services is like as an evergreen industry, just like healthcare, right? And um, you have an amazing opportunity, and you're definitely, um, as Experian, taking advantage of it, which is not just give value to businesses, but also in the process empower the consumer, empower the actual end user. So. Um, congratulations on great work you guys do. Thank you. And, and and just to say as well, like in terms of <clears throat> how I kind of look at this this deployment challenge, right? The deployment mm-hmm. challenge of AI. Um, you know, following on from what you said, I, I sort of see two dimensions to it. There's there's one dimension that the experience can can help with, and there's another dimension that we can't. The dimension we can help with is um, addressing these challenges businesses have around the model performance. The one that they've built with AI is not strong enough. Okay, so we have. You know, I mentioned uh, the Ascend platform. We talked about the, the Power Curve decisioning platform. You know, we can certainly help if your models are not strong enough. Mm-hmm. Um, equally, if you're having technical hurdles in implementing your models or scores, you know, actually driving them into production, you know, we, we, we basically, with our platform, Play as a one-stop shop, can simplify that process and make that easier. What we cannot solve, and you kind of alluded to as well, are ultimately the, the kind of uh, other big problem that businesses face, which is cultural issues in terms of actually approving the change, operationalizing, putting their trust in an AI model. Um, now, we have a number of white papers and, and, and sort of thoughts around uh, you know, employing yeah. this kind of culture of change, but it's up to every business to identify what their objectives are, exactly as you said, and to empower the, their people, uh, recruit the right people and empower them to make those objectives come true. And so that's that's beyond the remit of, uh, of what we do as a, as a service provider, but is crucial to the, your success in employing AI. That's amazing. Chris, that was an amazing, uh, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Where can the viewers and listeners find you on the internet? Uh, sure. So, <laughs> um, so I'm available on, on LinkedIn. Um, and also you'll see my, my blogs come up from time to time on experian.com. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and looking forward to any future feedback uh, from your listeners. As I said, I'm an avid, avid listener myself. So just excited to be part of this ecosystem of people talking about AI and looking to practical ways that we can use it to deliver value in the marketplace. So thank no. you so much for your time, Ganesh. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. And Chris, thank you for being a listener and a supporter of the podcast. And uh, you know, I'm sure the viewers and I will add your contact details on the show notes. And I'll ask everybody to refer to this podcast that you listen to it. And then sure, Chris will actually respond to you when you send him a note. All right. So thanks Definitely. so much for coming and uh, have a blessed day. Fantastic. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. 
If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.